last year I had multiple seven figures of net income, but I had more depreciation. So literally no income tax. It's spectacular. People wonder how, you know, you know who back in 2016 election had $700 of taxable income. (laughs) The number one strategy there is bonus depreciation. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Nick Huber, businessman extraordinaire, who's going to talk about the no BS way to build a business. But before we get into that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Had a pretty crazy weekend this past weekend celebrating mine and Leslie's eighth anniversary as dating. We're not married, but we still celebrate our anniversaries. We flew out to Denver on Friday, spent the night with a buddy. Um, that was nice. Just kind of had dinner, hung out, got up the next morning, landed in Vegas at like 10 a.m. Our room's not ready at that point. We just drop our bags off, go straight to like a day club, went to a Cascade was playing uh, as a DJ. And then we got invited into one of these like really high-end cabana things with its own little pool right next to the stage i mean these things are like i think they're like 15 grand rent for the day and we got invited in for free met a bunch of people ended up having some mutual friends from austin which was kind of crazy then we left from there did like the ferris wheel and stuff and just kind of walked around vegas went to the room relaxed for a little bit then we went to a kygo show at like midnight he comes on at like 2 a.m the show finishes at like 4 I find a hundred dollar bill in the in the bathroom actually in the <laughs> stall while at like four AM right before we're getting ready to leave. And then we go and have dinner, basically, whatever we have. I don't know what you'd call it. We eat at like five thirty in the morning, go back to the room, go to sleep at like six thirty, wake up at nine thirty, start to kind of get some stuff together, go have breakfast, pack up, check out, and go to the hotel pool, hang out for a couple hours, fly home, get home at eleven PM. And then I'm up the next morning and uh, at like 6 a.m. to head to the airport to come to Denver for work. And that's where I'm currently at on a work trip. But it was pretty crazy. And I know I threw it up on my Instagram, but I did like some quick math and won't go through every single line item because it probably take too long. <laughs> but because we rented out one room in our house for that weekend, overall, the entire trip for me and Leslie, we each earned $7 that weekend when you include the Airbnb <laughs> income and how much money we spent on this trip. And we stayed at a Waldorf we were 15 feet from Kygo. We go to this crazy day club. Like we ate great food. That's flights, hotels, everything. We both earned $7 this weekend. <laughs> Leave it to you, Justin, to make $7 going to Vegas, going to concerts, getting a $15,000 cabana pool, <laughs> poolside <laughs> thing. Wow. That is, that is pretty cool. Seven bucks. I mean, that's a lot better than what most people do. <laughs> yeah. I feel like people always want to like uh you know tell me exactly what to do and I'm like I don't know what to tell you. It's like you just got to learn how to you know look out for opportunities and maximize them. Yeah, there's no rule book for making $7. I mean, <laughs> just all the things that happened, picking up the 100 on the ground, making random friends, renting out the was it the whole house or just that room you rented out in Airbnb? Just the one room. Yeah, just the one room. Just the one room and you still came up positive. Awesome. Well, uh, that sounded like one heck of a weekend and sounded like you definitely need to catch up on some Z's this week. Don't know how the work trip's going to be. For me, it was also kind of a whirlwind. We are on opposite ends of the world as I'm recording this. We are in Bali. We're in the city of Ubud. 
And last time in our last intro, I had mentioned that me and Lauren, we were going to do our wedding ceremony the next day. So that happened. It was amazing. Like it was just me and her. We were on this cliff side. It's called the Belongin Cliff. And we hired like this kind of wedding coordinator. They had like this archway set up with all these flowers. And they had like an officiator to say some words. And we also hired this like camera crew company. They had two videographers. They had two drones. They had a photographer. It was like over the top. But because it's Bali, it was way cheaper than it would have been in the States just for like a regular (laughs) old photo shoot. Like it was insane. And we are so excited to kind of see the final product. They're going to make like a highlight video for us that we're going to be showing at the reception. So Justin, you'll have a chance to check that out. And I mean, just the videos and photos that we got from the iPhone of the woman who was planning the whole thing are like phenomenal, like insane. The stuff you'd see on, you know, a wedding Instagram highlight. So we are just like chomping at the bit to get the final products from this company. Well, congrats, man. And I can't wait to see those photos. Also can't wait to just steal your whole itinerary for Bali because I know, (laughs) you know, me and Leslie want to go and we want to go for like a couple months, I think, because it just sounds so awesome. Oh, yeah, it is. It is awesome. And so, uh, like I mentioned, we're in Ubud now. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had on Amy Minkley and she's actually been kind of showing us around, giving us stuff to do. We were hanging out with her. She organized this whole bike tour. So it was us and Amy and her fiance, Matthew, and then also Katie and Alan Donegan from the Rebel Entrepreneur School. They like have a podcast and they run all these events and free courses for people to start businesses. Actually going to have Alan on the podcast at some point in the future. We're trying to coordinate that. But yeah, man, it's been a blast over here. Like it's just such a vibrant community. There's a lot of expats over here. And Balinese people are like some of the most gracious, nicest people I have ever met. It's not like the fake nice, like (laughs) fake American nice where people are super nice to your face and they probably talk crap about you behind your back. Like they just have it ingrained in their culture to be like as generous with the resources and time and everything as possible. So it's they're like over the top, making sure you're well taken care of. Yeah. We will definitely give you the full itinerary, Justin, because you and Leslie would love it over here. All right. Well, we got a lot to catch up on, but that is enough about us, Justin. Let's get into the guest for today, Nick Huber. So Nick is someone who I've been following for a long time. He does like to stir up controversy on Twitter, but this guy knows what he's doing when it comes to business. He started in college with a self-storage business. He'll get into that and that whole story and how he was able to scale that to a multi-seven-figure business, ended up actually selling that business, and how he's then scratched his own itch and created businesses along the way. Like This guy will just see a problem. He'll figure out how to diagnose that problem with a business. Then that problem will become a business, and he's done this over and over and over again. And So he kind of gives us like the no BS way, like this is how you go ahead and build a business. There's no get-rich-quick scheme. He talks about building a team. He talks about finding the right product or finding the right service, finding the right customer, making sure you're not wasting time building a business that nobody's going to want. And yeah, this is one that you probably want to take your notepad out or take notes on your phone. There's a lot of wisdom that Nick drops and a lot of specific tools and tactics that he used to build his own businesses and that you could use to build businesses as well. Yeah, Cody, my favorite thing about this episode is just the mentality that you don't have to be like the next Steve Jobs. Like you don't have to create the next iPhone. You don't have to have this earth shattering new product or new service. There's plenty of businesses out there that are being run by someone who hasn't actually made it super efficient or, you know, just some small tweaks could make it so much more profitable. And when you think about like 10% more profitable on an actual business that is has a lot of revenue coming through it, that's a lot of net income. And he also talks about how grabbing something that has an immediate sale right in front of you. So whether it be like, you know, starting a lawn mowing business, like don't 
go down the rabbit hole so far at first thinking about how you're going to scale this thing and build an app for it and have self-scheduling and all this. It's like if your neighbor's yard needs mode, like start there, like start somewhere where you have a sale directly in front of you. You can get some capital. You don't have to take out tons of loans. You don't have to have a lot of risk and just start to scale it yourself and look for those efficiencies along the way. Like you said, he's just looking for those opportunities to solve problems that he personally had. Like as he's running these businesses, he's hiring people and then realizing, hey, why am I paying them? They're not even doing that great of a job. I think I could do it better and I think I could do it cheaper. It's going to save me money. And then I've created another business. So that's definitely my main takeaway from this episode. And Nick has a ton of businesses and a ton of things that you could kind of read through. So we definitely have a lot of stuff for you in the show notes. You can find all that and share this episode at thefyshow.com slash Huber. That's thefyshow.com slash H-U-B-E-R. Take it away, Nick. My life has been semi-entrepreneurial. I went to college after running a lawn care company not knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't take all the entrepreneurship classes. I didn't have my head in the entrepreneurship books. I was an opportunist. And junior year and during finals week, I had an opportunity to put my apartment on Craigslist instead of somebody renting it out because everybody was leasing their apartments over the summer. There was a, a massive amount of supply and not much demand. Somebody reached out and said, hey, Nick, will you store my stuff in your room? I took the opportunity, put their stuff in my room, made a couple hundred bucks. Next thing I knew, I could not rent it out because there's stuff in there. So I went around storing people's things. Moving and storage company called Storage Squad was born. That was 2011. Senior year, my partner and I grew the company. First couple of years in operation, 2012, 2013. We got up to a peak of by 2017 was our biggest year ever. We did a little over $2 million in revenue, You know, a couple hundred grand in profit, six full-time employees, two or 300 part-time employees in all these towns where we did this logistic, you know, the pickup and delivery logistics. It was the hardest business in the world, but it taught me how to operate taught me how to manage people, taught me how to basically do everything that was involved in running a company. By 2014, we had some cash set aside. We decided we wanted to build or get in the real estate game. Self-storage was a natural kind of extension. 2015, we raised the money from family and friends and broke ground on a, on a project in upstate New York. Went well over budget, ended up you know, being all-in basis on this first development that we opened the doors for in 2017 for $2.9 million. But it was a life-changing deal. A couple of years later, after we had leased that building, actually, we still own it today in 2023. It's worth about 10 million bucks. So that was a life-changing amount of capital. And we kind of realized really quick that, hey, we want to get out of this moving company and we wanted to start doing real estate. So late 2020, we sold our moving and storage company, $1.7 million exit, nothing life-changing. Rolled those proceeds right into self-storage where we built kind of a real estate private equity company where we raised money from outside investors, buy and operate self-storage facilities. Fast forward to this day, talking late May 2023 right now, we have 63 properties, 1.9 million square feet of storage, 45 employees. I'm also had this Twitter deal come up in my life where I now have almost 300,000 followers and a lot of opportunity to build some other companies off the distribution there. So started an engineering firm, cost segregation firm. I'm a partner and investor in, a, in an outsourcing firm to the Philippines called Support Shepherd. Own a myriad of other small businesses that we're working on growing. And here we are. It's like a busy man with a, a lot of things juggling there, but just to kind of like, let's like dig into a couple of them and break apart and see what we can get for the listeners. So when you're starting that first company, like you're just not even really a company at that point, like you just put a post, you're storing some stuff in your room, mm -hmm. but then you talk about how you quickly scaled that and you're making a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. 
what and how did you learn about scale? Like going from, okay, yeah, sure, you can store stuff in one room to turning that into something real. The difference between me and most entrepreneurs, because I, when I started the company, then I got a little bit excited about entrepreneurship and I went to take some entrepreneurship classes. I was in Ithaca, New York at Cornell, which is an Ivy League school. I went to take an entrepreneurial course and all the kids in the whole class wanted to do the next new big idea. They wanted to go raise money. They wanted to get on Shark Tank. They wanted to build an app. They wanted to have a business idea that changed the world. Professors, everybody who was on the panels judging us students, they were all like, hey, you know, what's your moat? What's different about your business? And, and I was you know, in this class talking about my moving company. I was like, I don't have a moat. I just answer the phone and there's more customers than there are companies. And there's an opportunity for me to come in here and get a, a slice of the pie. And I was excited about that while everybody else thought I was crazy. So I think that's the difference between me and most entrepreneurs. I got excited about something that most people look at as like, hey, Nick, there's 20 companies already doing this. This is not a new idea. This is not exciting. That's not entrepreneurship. Like That's just small business. Well, it turns out, you know, okay, that wasn't necessarily a good business. It wasn't infinitely scalable. But a couple years in, had a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank account, knew how to manage people, had some employees, and I had some operational chops. Like I knew how to market. I knew how to hire. I knew how to delegate to employees. And so that momentum, that snowball just kept rolling down the hill. And here we are over 10 years later. And okay, yeah, we're doing bigger and better things. And yeah, we're building generational wealth and some big businesses now. But I think the most important part is that I was excited about things that most people weren't that excited about. And you know, it wasn't sexy. I'm actually really glad we took this turn because you would have tweet that went semi-viral the other day. It was talking about how like Shark Tank's a lie. You don't need to invent the next best thing. It's like, just pick up the phone more often than the local plumbing company. Like have a little bit better customer service than name mm -hmm. your local company and you're going to outcompete them. You don't need a better product. You don't need better anything. Like just customer service could be something that you could outcompete other people on. I'm curious, Nick, if you have like a quick hit list of like easy things that you can outcompete the regular mom and pop businesses on. You know, there's this book that went really big called The Blue Ocean Strategy. And it's about like, a monopoly. Find a business where you are the only fish in the sea. There's not blood everywhere from all the other sharks eating fish. Find an ocean where you are the only operator and you can control price and you can you know, scale and you can create your own business model. And that's the way that entrepreneurship is kind of portrayed in the media. Like, you know, new idea, infinitely scalable. You know, we're going to change the world with something revolutionary and that's how we're going to get wealthy. In reality, there's a lot of really, really good businesses out there. They operate in our towns right under our noses and they make really good money and they're not that good at what they do, period. Let me tell you a surprise. I mean, like if you're listening to this and you're not really privy to entrepreneurship and small business, you see all these companies operating, you see these big companies operating, your town is full of businesses. If you actually looked under the hood at how those companies operate and you were a day in the life of a manager or a day in the life of an executive, you'd see that they're not that efficient. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of chaos. They have serious you know, problems on how data goes around inside their companies. They have employees that are pissed off. They have poor cultures. And frankly, they just don't do that good of a job. So my motto is always like, hey, look out there at these businesses and find one where the people who make the really good money aren't that smart. Number one, people who make a lot of money are not that smart. Real estate, that's why I'm in real estate because there's a lot of dumb, <laughs> rich real estate investors. Let's be, let's be real. Okay, I'm one of them. That's applicable to my entire philosophy on business. It's like, be more like water. Like water, imagine you're at the top of a mountain and you pour a cup out and water starts to flow down the mountain. Water's going down the mountain. It's going to find the easiest way. 
Okay, the quickest way. It's not going to look at the biggest, tallest, heaviest mountain and say, I want to climb that. I want to be like Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's going to say, hey, my goal, my goal is to make a couple hundred grand a year without working that much. That's my first goal. What's the easiest way that I can get there? I'm going to be like water and I'm going to find the easiest path of least resistance to get there. When most people go about the world saying, hey, what's the hardest problem I can solve? And obviously they fail. Obviously, you know, people who people start these world changing businesses, you know, 99% of them fail and they end up getting jobs. That doesn't get them very far. Thinking back to that first business where you're, like I said, you're just using the room, you're using something you already had. Like you didn't have to go out and you didn't have to buy a bunch of stuff. You didn't have to invest mm-hmm. a ton of money into it. Eventually, obviously, you talk about raising capital, but like for those people who are kind of getting started on the entrepreneurial route, what are some things that they should keep in mind as far as getting started in like a responsible way where if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world? I'm a big fan of low risk entrepreneurship and risk meaning like the chances that you're going to get a customer. There's a, there's a phenomenal amount of people, a large amount of people that will spend three to five months thinking about a business plan without going out and selling a customer. The very first thing that I did when I started any of my companies is like, hey, here's a customer. <laughs> Found it. He wants to give me money right now. <laughs> I already have the stuff to give this customer what they want. That's a really low risk way to go about it. And people need to also kind of realize that entrepreneurship is about momentum. Imagine it's a snowball and it's rolling and it's picking up steam. Like People try to do a lot of things very, very early. And in, in my opinion, it's all a leverage game. The more capital you have, the more skill you have, and the more access to talent like other people that you can hire and, and you know how to manage other people, the more of those three things that you have, the better you are going to be at business. Early on, when you don't... When you, maybe you have a job, maybe you don't have capital, you don't have a network, you don't have the ability to hire great people. You don't have any of the things required. Like Your skills are really, really low. And it's about building up the actual ability and delegation ability and running a company is a muscle. You can read books. Like If you want to get ripped, you want to get a six-pack, you're just going to read books on getting ripped and getting a six-pack? No, you're going to go to the gym and you're going to pick up the damn weight. Right? That's what you do. But business, people think about it backwards. They're like, hey, I want to become a really good business operator. So I'm going to read all these books about business. No, you become a good business operator by putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. The more uncomfortable you get, the better you become a business and the more your life opens up and the better things happen. Reading books and studying entrepreneurship is just the most comforting thing ever for people who have that like gene that they want to be productive. And like honestly, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now, they're feeling productive while they're listening to this podcast. Their life is not moving forward at all, but they're just listening to us talk about business like, "Oh, I'm I'm gaining knowledge. Like I'm taking steps forward." No, no, you're not. Like the best way to do it is Hey, I got a lawnmower in my garage and I got a neighbor that's grass is too tall. Okay. There's a problem and I can solve it right now. <laughs> I had an apartment and somebody else had some boxes in the, and then the dorm was shutting down for the summer. I could take my car that I already had and I could go pick it up and I could go solve it. So yeah, low risk entrepreneurship, find a business that's out in your town operating and go compete with them. Yeah. I'm such a huge fan of that. I really don't think maybe a hundred years ago, it was the case where you like need a bunch of money to make money, you know, broke, like what's the saying? Like, Broke money, don't make no money, or one of those, <laughs> yeah. all, all of those different sayings, all those different variations. It takes but, money to make money. And it's yeah. true. Like, in a sense, yeah. Doing business now, you have a competitive advantage. Like, I have capital, I have a network, and I have ability. So, like, I have a competitive advantage now. But yeah, you don't need those things to make your first dollar. Definitely not. So, I do want to talk about like sweaty startups. You talk about them all the time. It's your handle on Twitter. I kind of want to dig into that first business just a little bit more because. A lot of people are like, okay, I, I kind of get what Nick did. Like he had this apartment, but like how, what's the next step after that? Like once you get one or a couple of people to store their random crap in your dorm room, like 
what's next? Do you need capital to take that next step to then you ask your parents, you're like, hey, can I rent out the garage for and try to find people in the neighborhood or like talking about sweaty startups? I know you were like, I think I had a tweet from you that I read the other day that you were putting in like crazy amounts of hours while you were in college Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. self-storage business. So obviously it's like a lot Mm -hmm. of man hours, but like on the capital front, talking about like not having a ton of capital risk when you get started, what is that Mm -hmm. next step if you're in your situation? Yeah. All of our friends laughed at us and then they started playing beer pong and we got excited about going around and sweating and picking up boxes. (laughs) And a week later, we had four grand sitting on the bed. Cash. Okay. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. And this is just your room that you're renting out? I rented out my room, filled it with stuff. Then I called my business partner now and he had a basement in his house. We filled his whole basement. We filled his room. We gave each guy in the house a hundred bucks for their room because they were going to be gone all summer. We filled their rooms. We ran around all week in our cars, picking up stuff, working our asses off. But then it was like, most people still aren't that excited. It's four grand. I just worked my butt off. I missed a whole finals week of partying. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's chasing girls. Everybody's doing all this other stuff in college. These guys are crazy. Like, how are you going to get excited about that? Then it was about, okay, we're about to graduate college with Ivy League degrees where we could go out in the workforce and we could make, at that time, 60 grand, 80 grand, 100 grand starting salaries. So we had opportunity costs that we knew we had to kind of get uncomfortable because we couldn't just limp along with the startup business because time was of the essence. Like right now, in 2011, we had no kids, we had no mortgages, our parents were going to be able to send us five bucks a day for a foot long at Subway back then. <laughs> we didn't have any life overhead. Okay. We also didn't have any freaking skills. It's a double-edged sword to start these businesses when you're super young. But we just got out there and grinded and we're like, hey, next year, we're going to graduate. We had one more school year. This was junior year, finals week. We have one more school year and we're going to be gone. So we're going to get after this and we're going to get uncomfortable. What does getting uncomfortable mean? Oh, and we're not just going to double our branch at Cornell, the school we're at. We're going to launch a branch in Indiana at Indiana University because we had a buddy there that we can talk into running the branch. We're going to launch another one in Illinois. We're going to launch another one in Iowa. We're going to take student loan money out and we're going to buy three cargo vans for three, between 1500 and three grand each. We're going to drive to these locations. We're going to rent warehouses. We're going to do all this, like look back on it, quite insane stuff. But that's what we did and do that every year. And before you know it, you're in you know, 12 states, 25 colleges, and you're doing over 2 million a year in storing you know, stuff for 7,500 students. Each of them had 5.2 items. You know, we're looking at over 30,000 individual items in our warehouses organized. It got crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about that opportunity cost of, hey, yeah, you, you could have been making a salary. That's something you're leaving on the table. So you know you need to at least earn more than that to start breaking even. 
Mm-hmm. Did you have any kind of kind of personal contract with yourself to say, hey, if in six months it's not doing X, then we got to cut bait and run? Did you ever have that conversation with yourself? We did. My partner and I sat down and we said, we need 250 customers next year. If we get over 250 customers, I'm making a promise to you and you're making a promise to me that we're not going to go get jobs. Because that was the fear. Like me and my business partner, we were co-captains. We had a really decent network. We could get jobs. My fear was right before the busy season, my business partner was going to go, hey, Nick, I'm gone. I'm going to go, I'm going to go take this job in New York City. All of our friends were getting big jobs. And his fear was the same for me. Hey, I'm, not, I'm no longer excited about this. This sucks. I'm carrying around boxes while my friends are wearing suits, working at hedge funds in New York City. Like, hey, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> so we made a promise. We sat down and said, hey, look, if we get 250 customers, we are not going to get jobs. And we're going to make a promise to each other to do this one more year after college. Meaning we just graduated. If we can get 250 customers that season, we're going to go a whole nother year, a whole nother school season to build the company. We got 253 customers. Yeah. So it was close to being a really hard decision. But next year we got 550. The year after that, we got you know 2000. The year after that, we got 3500. And, and by 2017, we were doing over, over 2 million a year in revenue. So you seem like a guy who is laser focused on growth. I mean, just those growth numbers you just mentioned. How long was it until you actually took a dollar out of the business? Or were you just like reinvesting all of that into let's rent this other big warehouse. Let's you know buy a couple other cargo vans or yeah, I'm just wondering when that first dollar actually came and you're like, oh shit, like this is a real business. No, we paid ourselves the whole time. Oh, I nice. mean, every year the business was profitable. In 300 grand of revenue, we did almost all the work ourselves. We made 50 grand. Year after that, we made 150 grand. Year after that, we made 300 grand. So it's like reasonable amounts of profit. And that's another reason why it was low risk. We didn't have debt. We didn't have a ton of time sunk. We didn't go without salaries for a long time. These businesses are made to serve people. I don't think it's the other way around that these people should be devoting three to five years of their life to serve a business that could someday be worth nothing. So with knowing that, that you're taking out 50, 100, 300K, I mean, it sounds like you're probably going to be having like 500K in profits that you're taking in by the time you're 24, 25. Like what were you doing with all that excess money? Yeah, we lived on a very different amount. Yeah. We could live very, very frugally. I lived in Portage Park in Chicago on a... Lockwood and Irving. And there was a little Polish deli behind us where we could go make rice, beans, and chicken dinners and tacos for literally four or five bucks a man. And once a week, we'd buy a case of Keystone Light for $9.99, right? That's how we lived. By the time it was 2014, we had a half million bucks sitting in the bank after tax. Everybody asks, like, how do you get into real estate? I want to get into real estate. And another huge wake up call for people who want to get into real estate is yes, you can house hack. Those things are amazing, like building equity in your home. Those are all really good ways to get into real estate. But the main way to get into real estate and to build wealth through real estate is to already have some money. I don't know how to be more frank. (laughs) Like real estate takes a ton of cash. And there are two things in real estate it's cash and it's operations, like sweat, and the cash calls the shots. Like I got news for you (laughs) sweat equity is worth jack shit when it comes to real estate. (laughs) The people with the money call the shots. So we had a little bit of our own money. That meant we could go get a bank loan. We didn't need somebody else to personally guarantee it. That means we could call the shots. We had a little bit more leverage. We could negotiate more upside in the deal for us. And that deal that we built for 2.4, bought a property across the street for 500 grand. So our basis was 2.9 million. By 2019, two years after we built it, we did a cash out refinance at $5.5 million. I got a million bucks put in my checking account in 2019. I was 30 years old. That's when the snowball really started going down the hill. 
And for those who've never looked into doing something like where you were raising capital to go buy one of the, you know this bigger property, what was that process like? What were those conversations like? Were you keeping those pretty close knit circles, like just family mm-hmm. and friends? Like, how did you find the people, and what was the conversation like? This is another thing about real estate is that or business in general, there's no textbook. We go our whole lives, you know, high school trying to get into a good college. We go our whole lives like, hey, you want the answer to this problem in front of us? Turn the page back and, and look up the answer. It's right there. You got to look it up. So we're trained. Hey, need the answer? Oh, teach me how to look it up. Where is it? I'm going to Google it. Oh, I'm going to look at, look two pages back in the algebra textbook to figure out this theory. In business, that's all off the table. So if you have not trained yourselves to make decision with no information, little limited information, just a gut decision, you'll perish. There's nobody that's going to answer your questions. When it's like, hey, Nick, how many square feet should the warehouse be in Boston? It's our first year there. We don't know how many customers we're going to get. You think there's an answer to that? There's no fucking answer. <laughs> I had to go look on Craigslist for a warehouse. I had to put five grand deposit down in a warehouse. I didn't even know if we were going to get one customer. I didn't know. Okay. Hey, Nick, what am I supposed to do on this job? Hey, I'm just thinking about the goals and answering the question, right? Same with real estate. And when you're underwriting a deal, when you're trying to figure out how valuable a property will be, you make a ton of assumptions. How many units you're going to rent each month? How much they're going to pay? What are the property taxes? What are the utilities? What's the labor? You're just making a bunch of guesses. You can make a spreadsheet look however you want to make a spreadsheet look. And that, for somebody who's analytical, for somebody who has a really high IQ, for somebody who does well on standardized tests, you can get analysis paralysis in a heartbeat. Hey, there's too much information. I don't have enough data. I'm out. This is crazy. Who would ever do this business? But for us, we were like, oh, just figure it out. Shit, we've been doing that for eight years. We have had no idea what we were doing this whole time. So we went and... <laughs> We went and found a life storage model from a, a management pitch and we put in what we thought was in that model. Turned out to be horrifically wrong. We went 500 grand over budget on the development. We went in with a $1.9 million budget and we spent 2.4. Had to go back to the investors and ask them for more money. There was no playbook on how to raise the money. There's no playbook on how to go raise capital as a 24-year-old with no experience at all in real estate and just you know, a little bit of grit. So I went from kitchen table to kitchen table to kitchen table I invented my own structure, which is not how I would recommend raising money. I didn't know how a preferred return and promote and, and how to actually raise money on a real estate private equity structure that we utilize nowadays. So figured it out. I went from kitchen table to kitchen table and got turned down. My father I convinced him to put the first bit of money in. He mortgaged the house to do it. He didn't tell me that he put a mortgage on the house. Then I went to all of his buddies and basically tried to convince them to invest in my deals. I mean, look, it's a place of privilege that I was able to piggyback on my dad's network to raise money for the first deal. But we quickly realized that we were going to run out of capital. Like we needed, we raised a half million dollars for that first project from six people. But frankly, I wasn't a country club kid. I didn't know real wealthy folks, period. Just didn't. So second deal, third deal, fourth deal, we closed those deals with our own cash from our storage business because my dad's network in small town, Indiana, where he was a construction manager, like that, that didn't work. So we bought second property in 2019 at public auction. It was getting auctioned for a certain price. We had no idea. They wouldn't let us go in any of the units. We had no idea how to underwrite the deal. We used our gut. We bought the deal for $640,000 in late 2019. Um, we did a refinance at 2 million bucks three months ago on that one deal. That's the thing about real estate as well is one deal can absolutely change your life. Absolutely. So at what point do you start diversifying outside of self-storage? Because before, and listeners don't know this, but before we recorded this and we we're setting it up, you're like, hey guys, like here are the links to the companies I'm involved in. Dude, you have your hand in so <laughs> many different buckets and so many different verticals. Like 
when did that start? When did you start to branch out of like your comfort zone? I mean, self-storage was something you had been like totally bootstrapped mm-hmm. since the college dorm days. Yeah. So the student storage business, we realized that that necessarily wasn't a good business. We have to diversify from that. The first self-storage deal, as soon as that thing got open, we realized, okay, this is where the money is. Like, this is where we can generate real wealth. But I had no way to raise money. 2019, late 2019, a friend of mine called me and said, Nick, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Twitter. That's where the deals happen. So I got on Twitter and I started tweeting about our first couple storage deals. Hey, we bought them for X. I was putting screenshots of my profit and loss statement. I was just being brash, like doing things that real estate investors don't do, which is like share, hey, this is what we spent to build a property. Here's our profit and loss statement. Here's how it all looks. Here's how it all works. And people are like, whoa, this guy's sharing a profit and loss statement on Twitter. This is insane. And they started following me. I realized real quick at about 10,000 followers that I was getting direct messages from people with real cash saying, hey, Nick, I like the way you think about storage. I want to invest in your deals. That was 2020. So we raised money for another deal, another three deals in 2020. 2021, my Twitter following started jumping big time up to 100,000, still talking about deals. That's when we went on a buying spring. We bought $50 million worth of self-storage in 2021. And I started realizing that, hey, this following, these entrepreneurs and these, and these small business owners and these real estate investors, it's not just necessarily investing that they want to do, but they run companies. And these companies, they need other services. I started working with a company called Support Shepherd as an affiliate. Marshall, the owner of the company, late 2021, he said, Nick, I want you to be an affiliate. Like I hired a Filipino VA. That changed my life as well because I realized that, hey, I got to pay $55,000 for an American employee that I don't know how hard they're working. They need you know, three weeks off. They're going to complain a lot. They're going to quit. You know, they don't really... <laughs> the American work ethic, you, know, you can find amazing people, but in general, it's a little bit tougher. I can hire somebody in the Philippines for $1,000 a month, $475 an hour, and they're going to be upbeat, excited, and they're going to be excited about, just excited about working? Like, whoa, I can do that. So I hired an employee in the Philippines, the first one, and Support Shepherd was the company that I used to source it. They brought me three employees. I got in, I started looking at you know, these resumes, interviewed all three people. And I'm like, I want to hire all three. Like, can I take all three of these people? They, I want all three to work for me. And I did. And Marshall's like, wow, so you like the service. We've never had anybody hire all three of the candidates that came through. <laughs> and I was like, well, first of all, I just need a lot of people. But second of all, the service is amazing. And he's like, well, why don't you be an affiliate for me on Twitter? You got 100,000 followers, talk about it. And when you send business to, to Shepard, we'll send you a cut. And I did that for a year and Shepard exploded. It exploded not only because of my reach, but also because it's a phenomenal service for small business owners who want to get you know, overseas talent. And then 2022, we made a deal where I'm a minority partner in that business, but it's a huge business now. I mean, Shepard is a $25 million business at this point. Wow. You listed off a lot of other companies. You even mentioned yeah. something like engineering. You know, like that one sounded like it was a little bit more opportunistic. Like it just kind of happened. What are some of the other ones and how did those come about? No. So a cost segregation study is something that real estate investors do. I don't know if you've covered that on this show, but it lays out the depreciation schedule so you can get tax deductions for buying real estate. Because if I buy a computer mouse as a tool, I get to write it off all year one. But if I buy a building, I got to deduct it over a scheduled certain amount of time that the IRS declares. And different parts of the building are worth different amounts of money. The windows, the floor, the outdoor you know, improvements. So you got to have an engineering firm that can come in and segregate all those costs, separate all those costs and give you a... You know, When we buy a property, we buy a million dollar self-storage facility, we will send the engineers the data on the building. They'll send us back a report that we turn to our accountant and they you know, give us the depreciation and the deduction schedule. I realized I was paying like you know, two, three, four grand for these studies. Every real estate investor gets them on every single property. So went to my CPA and said, hey, do you know what this is? He's like, oh yeah, I do these all the time. My company's done over 100 of them. 
boom, we formed a partnership and started a cost segregation firm. And that business is really big now too. We're doing $175,000 a month in revenue. We have 26 employees and we started a year ago. So my distribution can really ramp up these companies fast. And up next was a property and casualty insurance. My broker was doing a really crappy job, came up on renewal for my storage facility. And it was like, okay, Nick, your premiums are going to go up 70 grand. And I'm like, did you do any work? Did we talk to any carriers? Like, (laughs) why is it going to go up so much? And they're like, oh no, you know, okay, we can ask a couple if you want. (laughs) And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And and it turns out the brokers, all they do is play golf. Insurance brokers, (laughs) they get their book of business, they send people renewals and they play golf. And I'm like, that's kind of a good business. (laughs) That sounds pretty good. So we started a company called Titan Risk, got Bolts as a customer and lowered our premiums massively. And that's going to be a big company too. I mean, the playbook is that I'm utilizing my distribution to grow other companies because now I have 70,000 people on my email newsletter. I have 300,000 followers on Twitter. I have two podcasts that you know, get five or 6,000 downloads per episode. So here we are. Yeah. You're basically just scratching your own itch though. Like going back to the Shark Tank thing, you're not inventing anything new. People have been doing cost segregation and insurance forever. You just notice like inefficiencies, like my insurance broker sucks. Like this cost segregation thing, like everybody should be doing it. I'm going to start this company. I do want to kind of zoom in on the cost seg stuff. We've talked about it in kind of more abstract, like in theory, like I'm sure listeners have probably heard us mention it a time or two before our previous guests. But I think I saw on Twitter that you did like 30 cost seg studies last year and you went from, I don't know if you shared exact numbers, but millions in profit and net income. And you basically have like zero dollars in taxable income effectively. So can you just talk about like, I mean, that's that's crazy. Like a lot of people are looking mm-hmm. for tax strategies. We talk about tax strategies a lot in here. I think this is one that is very underplayed in the personal finance space. Yeah. So let's just do the example of a self-storage facility. We buy a storage facility for a million bucks. Typically you deduct that over 39 years. So that's 2.2 something percent of the million dollars, $22,000 a year of a deduction for 39 years. And that's a great deduction. You can't depreciate the land value. So you got to pull that out. There's a lot of nuance here. I'm going to cover the basics so people can understand the basics, but there's a ton of nuance. Talk to your CPA, talk to your tax attorney, all those things. But yeah, $22,000 a month is the standard straight line depreciation. There's a tax loophole deduction code called bonus depreciation that allows any of those assets inside of a building, the windows, the HVAC system, the lights, the outdoor improvements, any of those that have under a 15-year lifespan, which is sidewalks, my hot tub, my decks, like short-term rentals is huge for, that all can be used in year one. That's called bonus depreciation. That amount, that 100% bonus depreciation is, is tapering off to 80% this year, 60% the year after that. But basically, it allows you to take a huge chunk of front-loaded depreciation. So we buy a $1 million self-storage facility. It's not uncommon for 25% of the purchase price to be year one bonus depreciation eligible. So we bought $50 million of storage in 2021. We got $12.5 million of year one depreciation. Shared a lot of it with our LPs. We got a lot of it ourselves because we're putting a lot of our capital into these deals now at this point. And I can use, since I'm a real estate professional, which is a type of investor in the eyes of the IRS, since I'm a, a real estate professional, I can offset my active income. There's two types of income for the IRS. There's active income and passive income. I can offset my active income, which is from my small businesses or my W-2 if I had a job. I can offset that with passive losses, which are depreciation expenses. So last year, I had multiple seven figures of net income, but I had more depreciation. So 
literally no income tax. It's spectacular. People wonder how, you know, you know who back in 2016 election had $700 of taxable income. <laughs> yeah. The number one strategy there is bonus depreciation and cost segregation studies. So we looked at this cost seg business and how it works. And it's a bunch of people flying around, engineers flying around to buildings, American engineers that make 120 grand a year. They're on planes, they're going to buildings, they're taking a bunch of pictures. We said, hold on, the technology allows for me to get what I need from a, a video call. We did it with a couple of property managers. We can call a property manager and they can show, we spend an hour on the phone and they can show us, oh, point your camera all around this property. We're going to take a ton of screenshots and we're going to have what we need to build a cost segregation study, a fully engineered cost segregation study that way. So we can do it for half the price and we don't need to fly somebody there. So basically, it used to be that only people who bought a property for over 500 grand could afford a three to $4,000 cost seg study. We're doing cost seg studies for a thousand bucks on short-term rentals that people paid 120 grand to buy for the first time ever. So that's another huge part of our business where people who buy smaller properties can utilize cost segregation services. And that company is called RE Cost Seg. So if you're looking for a proposal there, I'm not here to sell cost seg studies, but it's recostseg.com. And just to dive in a little deeper on this, what are situations where you can't use this? Like, who, who will this not work for? If somebody's listening and getting excited and thinking they're going to do this, like, who does this not work for? Or what type of properties does it not work if for? If you're going to flip, if you're going to sell a property quickly, it's not a good idea because you have something called recapture on the other side. All those deductions, when you lower your basis and you sell, the difference between your new basis and your sales price, that can be recapture. That's taxed at ordinary income rates. So if you're in a 40% tax bracket, you could pay 40% tax on the way out when you sell a property. It's pushing the can down the road. It's not saving taxes, it's deferring taxes. So you're not paying the IRS now, but you will pay the IRS eventually unless you pass away and you do step up in basis. And there's other crazy loopholes. There's a 1031 exchange when you sell a property and you're going to trade it for one and like kind and avoid the capital expenses. But mainly, the main people who can't utilize bonus depreciation is people who are not real estate professionals because then and passive income and losses cannot offset each other. There's multiple types of income in the eyes of the IRS. Now, I know cost segregation well, but I'm not a CPA. So I'm just going to say that again. Consult your CPA. But there's many different income classifications. There's passive you know, investment gains from the stock market. There's investment gains from business and real estate that you're not involved in, passive. There's W-2 income. That's your active income job. And there's cash flow from a small business that you own that's also active income. They can't offset each other unless you're a real estate professional, which means you spend more than 700 hours a year working on real estate or it's your primary activity or you're married to a real estate professional. So if you guys are just podcasters talking about investing, probably cannot make the case that you're a real estate professional. Me, I run a real estate private equity company. I can be a real estate professional. One of our investors, he's a W-2. He works at Airbnb, makes 450 grand a year, but his wife is a real estate agent and she sells houses. She's a real estate professional. So they're both considered real estate pro. And then his investments with us can offset his active income. So a lot of nuance to this. Recommend you read the IRS publication about what is a real estate professional. For sure. But yeah, I mean, super powerful. The fact that you're basically taking millions of dollars in net income, <laughs> getting your taxable income to zero. I mean, yeah, people do not sleep on this strategy because like you said, Nick, even if you're someone with an Airbnb, you don't have to be someone who is buying multi-million dollar like self-storage facilities. You could literally just buy an Airbnb for 200K and get a pretty decent chunk written off your active income if you get the... Airbnb actually is not passive income if the average stay is under okay. seven days. So there's a little bit of a loophole there where if you're the person who works on the Airbnb management the most and the average stay is less than seven days, the income from that real estate property can be counted as active 
again, consult your CPA. But we have a ton of clients who work W-2s, have a lot of active income, buy Airbnbs and short-term rentals, and cost segregate them, and it does offset their active income because it's classified as active income. So there's a lot of nuance here. That's why we had you on, Nick. Thank you for correcting me there. Yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. One thing we haven't really touched on, and now you're someone who has hired probably hundreds of people at this point. How do you go about like finding the right people, setting up the SOPs, the standard operating procedures? Like, I feel like that's one of the biggest things that new entrepreneurs struggle with is like getting someone to fill that position. I know when you first got started, it was like, give your buddies a case in Addy Light and they'll go and grab the boxes from the rooms. But now you have <laughs> a little more structure. Well, actually, they didn't. Work. Like, it's, oh, it's, okay. Nobody ever wants to do hard work. Yeah. I mean, hard work <laughs> is hard work. So, like, it sounded cool to get the job, but as soon as they had enough money to go buy their case of beer on Friday night, they weren't showing up the next morning to sweat and drive a truck all day. Right. Fair enough. But look, you're going to talk to a lot of people on here that'll look you right in the eye and say, the key to my success and key to building my amazing business is the great people that I hired. You got to hire great people. I mean, how many times have you, Cody, have you heard that? Oh, like you got to hire great yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you it's bullshit. Okay. I'm going to tell you that. And part of it's because I just don't like that narrative. But the second part is the key to building a successful company is not finding unicorns, phenomenal people who will feel about your business the way you feel about your business. Business owners have that mindset. I need to find somebody who treats my company like I do. Hey, newsflash, that person doesn't exist. That's a unicorn. It's literally a figment of your imagination. Another human being that's on your payroll caring about your business like you care about your business, you're looking for something that doesn't exist. The key to success is building a business that's simple, giving employees guidance, and creating a company that can thrive with average people. Okay. And every now and then you get lucky and one in the five people you hire are going to be amazing. I still don't know how to interview somebody and figure out if they're a 10Xer. I don't know if they're good until they get started. Period. So my motto is hire fast and fire fast. Now, when you get somebody and early on in the early days, you're like, oh, I hear all this amazing advice. So that's number one. <laughs> number one is don't look for unicorns and build a business with normal people. And stop looking for unicorns. Start hiring normal people. Okay, start with somebody in the Philippines for $1,000 a month. That's a little bit easier to swallow. Then you'll be able to get a little bit better at delegating. Okay? Second part is all the entrepreneurs I know thrive in chaos. They're good at making decisions. They're good at just insane situations. They just thrive in it. And they hear all this talk about how employees want to be their own boss. Employees want autonomy. Employees hate you know, being told what to do and micromanaging structure. So they create an environment that they thrive in for their employees, which is chaos. Constantly having to make decisions, constantly putting out fires, constantly dealing with stress. Newsflash, newsflash. Those people would not be going to you for a job if they wanted to be in an entrepreneurial situation where they're making hard decisions all day long. They would be entrepreneurs themselves. Okay, there's two types of people in the world. One outnumbers the other 99 to one. There's entrepreneurs who love chaos and decision-making and like what I was talking about earlier, making decisions with incomplete information. Then there's number two, who want to show up. They want to do what they're told to do. They want to succeed. They want to make their customers happy. And then they want to go home and forget about work. <laughs> okay. So as a business owner, I think it was 2012, we were all over the map. We had a list. I remember we were running our business on LTE tablets. And on the back of the tablet, there was a list of about 40 steps that they needed to do when they serviced the customer. It was call the customer, schedule the customer, answer the phone, label all the boxes, draw up the invoice, load the truck. When you're back in the truck, you're updating the schedule. When you get back to the warehouse, you're organizing the warehouse. 
And we had just a chaotic environment where these employees were forced to figure it out on their own. 2013 to 2014, we doubled in revenue and the stress was half as much because of one thing. It's because we created a simple structure for our employees. (laughs) Hey, what can we take off the delivery driver's plate? Oh, let's do all the customer service and let's not let anybody get that delivery driver's phone number. That delivery driver's phone number cannot go in the hands of the customers. Oh, we're having our delivery drivers create our invoices. They're doing a shit job and they're costing us tons of money. They're mispricing boxes. So why don't they just take a picture of it? And the picture goes to somebody in the Philippines and that person can create the invoice. You get what I'm going here? Mm-hmm. Simplify the job because if you give an employee more than five tasks, they're going to suck at all of them. If you tell an employee to do 10 things, they're going to suck at all of them. If you tell them they got to do five things, they're going to be reasonable at all of them. If you tell an employee they got to do one thing and they do the same damn thing all day long, they're going to get really good at it. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And I think it's also as like a consumer, I think sometimes you find yourself in those situations where you, there's somebody who you feel like just does have that one job and when they don't do it, that's what gets so irritating. That's a, that's a whole different side of the topic. But that's like one of my pet peeves. It's like, dude, you had one job. <laughs> you do that one job. The Bill Belichick motto, like do your one job, right? Mm-hmm. Let's do your job. Yeah. I do like though that your thought process around like, hey, I'm not going to like make myself believe that I can tell when I interview someone that they're going to be this 10X or there's no way I'm going to know when I have to see them actually in action, no matter how many books I read, no matter how many psychology profiles I do on a person, like you just got to see them do the work and to hire fast, but to also be comfortable knowing that that also might mean you had to fire fast. There might be some turnover. It's more of a volume game that you know you're going to get one eventually and you just got to keep going until you find the right ones. Look, people talk about business culture, building a culture inside of a company and you hear the Silicon Valley type talk about ping pong tables and pizza parties and early Fridays. That's what they think of when they think about culture. You want me to tell you what a good culture really is and in a good culture and what a, a 10X employee, somebody who's really good at their job, a, a company that they want to work at and a company that they don't, what's the difference? As a business owner, employees will do and continue to create an environment where they do as little as they have to do. And if they see incompetence in a company, and they see that the incompetence is tolerated by the business owner, it crushes their morale and it makes them want to do less. Okay. So the worst thing you can do for a 10Xer inside of a company is surround them by C players. They're going to be gone. You're going to keep losing your top talent. And everybody knows what it's like, whether you've been at a company or you have a job right now where there's five people on your team that can't chew gum and walk at the same time. You are miserable. You are miserable. And you want to get the heck out of that company. There's nothing that drives top performers nuts faster than working with incompetent people. So if you're a business owner and you're going to prove that, hey, don't do your job, you're out of here. I'm getting rid of people quick who are not doing their job. That is the best way to create a culture of like where the 10Xers can come to work and kick ass. They can kick a ton of ass. And you know what 10Xers love doing? 10Xers love kicking ass. (laughs) And they love it when everybody else is kicking ass. Seriously. I want to be productive. I want to move fast. And I want to get stuff done. The second part of it is like quick decision making at a higher level. Nothing frustrates 10Xers worse than having a suggestion, having a problem, having something that's messing up their day. They want to kick ass. They can't kick ass. Hey, boss, I can't kick ass. I got this thing over here. And the boss says, hmm, I'll think about that. Next week, come to work. Same problem. Keep me from kicking ass. Hey, boss, I told you exactly what we need to do. Like, All we got to do is this, that, and the other, and I'm going to go back to kicking ass. I'll make that decision next week. That happens a ton. Mm -hmm. A ton of companies, they cannot make decisions. They will not implement changes fast. And you're working in these companies, just like I said, 
companies that make good money, healthy companies that have shit processes. They're all over the place. And you work at a lot of companies. This is a problem with being in kind of corporate America and the big bureaucracy. They don't want you coming in and telling them to change anything. They want butts and seats and they want people who will just follow the directions and get the work done. That's all they need to do. And they're going to print their 20% profit margins a year and their shareholders are going to be happy. Everybody wins. They don't need somebody at the lower level coming in and saying, hey, do XYZ and change the other thing. But at a small business and at my business, one of my employees comes to me and says, hey, Nick, this is an inefficient process. I need a VA. I need some help. The information disconnect from here to a customer is not good. Our billing sucks. I'm going to get right after it. I'm going to change that right away. I'm going to get problems solved and enable my 10Xers to keep kicking ass. That's my only job as a business owner now. I don't have a job in my company except enable all my 10Xers to do what they do best. And if anything's stopping them, that's my urgent priority. Love that. And for those who want to kind of continue with your story and all the things you have to share, where is the best place or places for them to get in contact and follow along? So I have a podcast on small business called The Sweaty Startup. I have a podcast on real estate called The Nick Huber Show. I'm active on Twitter at Sweaty Startup. And I have a blog called SweatyStartup.com. If you really want to follow along, I send an email weekly about you know, management techniques and, and pretty nitty gritty of hiring, firing, managing growth, marketing, and real estate. And you can sign up for that newsletter at SweatyStartup.com. But that's what I spend a lot of my time doing and thinking about. And yeah, I know I can get pretty excitable about this stuff, but everybody who's listening, keep in mind, like I have no idea what I'm doing. That's the thing about business. There's a hundred ways to win. I'm serious. You come to a why in the road in, in business and there's two ways to go in a decision. I make 10 decisions a day and eight of them could be bad. But if I get the two main decisions right, I'm still going to win. There's a lot of margin for error in this stuff once you build some momentum, once you build some business. So don't just take my advice. You know, Get a lot of advice. If what I said kind of goes in and you're like, oh, that doesn't really pass the bullshit meter, throw it out. It doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. Like Cody said, thank you so much for giving us some time. You obviously have a ton going on, but it was a great conversation. And I just appreciate kind of the realness of the conversation. So thanks for that. Justin, Cody, thanks for having me. Love what you guys do. Keep up the good work. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.